The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrensmee, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. So in my job, my job outside of interviewing people on this show is to go to companies and organizations and talk to people about changing our perception of mental health and work and working with leaders who are managing their own anxiety and other mental health challenges. I work in big companies, small companies, government agencies. I love working with organizations that take mental health seriously and are open to change, right? I met today's guest at a fabulous event at Google last year, the Johnny Martin Challenge, which is all about innovating mental health and how we take care of people with mental illness. Anthony Hunter was there as a student, and we got to talking, and I just was taken with him. He's much younger than me, but he had a sense of purpose and intention and charisma that I responded to. So I wanted to have him on the show because he so seamlessly integrates mental health and leadership. Anthony Hunter is a finance major at Morehouse College, and he just graduated last week. There, he served as the president of Counseling Humans in Life Lessons, otherwise known as AUC Chill, which is the mental health organization for Morehouse College and a number of the surrounding colleges and universities in Atlanta. Anthony is not a typical student. He is involved in his own business as a producer and has been involved in his family businesses for years and has integrated working and being a student and leading all together. So I wanted to speak to him about the stresses of being a student, being a Gen Zer, and working on our mental health while he's going out in the world and building his career and really thinking intentionally about leadership. He has a lot of advice I think the rest of us could really use. I started by asking him, is he ready to graduate? You could say that. The word ready is is a fun word. Um, (laughs) (laughs) People often ask me, what are you going to do after college? And I say, what I've been doing. There's no life change. I only get eight hours of my life back every day. You know, with my business, I I do consulting and film production. I've been doing that throughout college with family business. I travel on my breaks with my mom and we do mission work in Mozambique or I'll be flying out with my dad and looking at the hotels and then serving on campus is it's always just an active thing. So my life only gets more time to just do what I like rather than what somebody else is telling me to do. So I look forward to it because it's literally just my life in times 10, you know? Yep. Plus, you get a fancy degree, so that's always good. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the network. You got you to gotta make, connect- make the relationships. That's the network. That is the network. Why is mental health work a big piece of your life? It was a surprise. A lot of what I will talk about personally is more like me being a reluctant leader, um, mm. having to step in 
when I don't necessarily want to, but when I feel like it's most necessary. And mm -hmm. in high school, I got introduced to mental health when I took my friend to her military ball and I met some people there and I stayed in touch with them. And like two months later, one of them was going through a very serious situation and called me at like 11 p.m. on a school night, nonetheless. Mm. And they were talking about trigger warning. She was she was contemplating suicide. And mm. and I'd only known her for two months. I'd probably only spoken to her like two or three times. And she said, you're the person that I trust. So I called you. Mm. And I was like, Okay, I'm a stranger. In that moment, though, I recognized, I was like, there is a power within me to serve and to be the one that somebody can confide in to talk them down and to huh. offer the right solution. And so that carried forth into me when I graduated and I got to Morehouse and I found Chill. I was like, I am, I'm going to serve. This is going to be one of the organizations that I'm a part of. And I'm going to make sure that nobody has to feel like they're alone in those moments where they're in crisis. And so our job as an organization is to bridge the gaps between the students and the counseling center, but also to coach and, and train students in communication skills, leadership skills, and the skills necessary to succeed not only in college, but in life, counseling humans in life lessons. I think what was exciting to me when we talked, and, and even just now, was the seamless way that you integrated mental health and leadership. Mm -hmm. That is not a natural integration for many people. Well, I mean, everything, <laughs> everything, <laughs> life, you know, an organization can only grow to the level just beneath their leader, right? So if the leader is at a five, the organization can only grow to a four. And so if a leader is in a position where they're not ascending constantly as an individual, then the organization will either stagnate or start to regress. And I find it very important to constantly right be in communication with ourselves and others and that requires us to be emotionally intelligent to a certain degree how have you developed your own sort of communication with yourself practice what do you do well that's a lifelong journey yeah i'll say the biggest change and the most intention came when i started reading i, I always mispronounce his name tichnat han Thich Nhat Hanh? Yeah. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, that's the American version. I don't know what the true pronunciation right. is. Right. And I, I feel so bad because I travel so much and I'm like, I should know how to pronounce this. But the book, The Art of Communication, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And in like the second chapter, he talks about how, you know, there is pain, anxiety, hurt, darkness or whatever that's within you. And a lot of people like shove it away. They push it away. When the best way to actually deal with that, our shadow self or the side of ourself that we don't like, is to embrace it like it's a child. And at the time, I was, and this is just last year, actually, my junior and sophomore years in college, I was very, very depressed, uh, suicidally depressed, actually, at the, at the, during my sophomore year. And when I read that, I was like, that's, that's why I haven't been taking care of my inner child. And I went through a lot, a lot, a lot of work to write down and define if there are any, I'll say, breaks in my personality 
And I really got it down to my inner child, me, and my shadow self. And I, I have a name for all of them. My inner child is Anthony because I grew up going by AJ. So AJ is is grown me. And mm. Wolf is my shadow self because Wolf is also one of my nicknames. And oh. and so now I I can just go and I say, am I acting out of a place for fear? Well, that's probably Anthony because Anthony is a child. Am I being too cocky? Okay, that's AJ. Am I being angry? Okay, that's that's Wolf. And Wolf Wolf needs to just breathe for a second. And <laughs> yeah, and so so I, I had to I had to make a distinguish because I need to understand my internal dynamic. So Anthony always checks Wolf because the the child is the one that shows the most love to the darkest parts of us the hurt parts of us. And then mm. AJ is the one who has always been the one that's experienced the pain, the hurt and whatever. So he's got the calluses. He's got the, 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 the scars. He's got the scar tissue. He's tough. Anything that needs to happen right now, it's like shut off all emotion and be AJ. Anything that requires a lot of emotion, shut it all down and be as emotional as possible or as creative as possible as Anthony. And if I really just need to be that dog, I'm Wolf. But your creativity lies in the child. I mean, it's in all three because creativity is connecting the dots with what we see in the world and what we see in our imagination. And so the creative side wouldn't have anything without the one who has all the experience and knows all of the conventions. Mm. And the social mores. and Right. Did you go to therapy? I did seek counseling this last year. I, I, as the president of the organization, I was like, you know, I can't practice what I preach if I'm, if I'm not getting therapy. So I, mm -hmm. I got counseling at, at Morehouse this last year, not because I needed it, but because I felt it was necessary to see how it could help me. And I realized that even if you're all good, generally, that conversation, that vent session, that connecting with somebody and talking about the future and all the things that you're looking forward to is so important to, I guess, greasing up the machine, you know, and, and keeping it operated. Yes. And building insight. I think therapy is the best leadership tool you can have, to be honest. You came of age, though, during the pandemic. You were in college during the pandemic years. And I'm curious, you said that, you know, when you were a sophomore was the worst and you were extremely depressed. Was Do you think the pandemic had a role in that? Oh, no. And you're going to think I'm silly if I tell you why. <laughs> no, I, I never judge. <laughs> no, I, I know. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> my My freshman year, I met who I would call my college sweetheart. Mm. And when I got into college, I was like, I'm not going to date. I have my own business. I got to focus up. I got to get ahead in school. You know, if I get ahead, I don't have to catch up. And, mm -hmm. and if I stay ready, I don't have to get ready. And I wasn't dating, but I met this amazing young woman and we had built up our relationship. And I was actually very against being in a relationship because of those very reasons. And like around her, spring break my freshman year or our freshman year she and i had both just really confessed our love for one another and we had been through the motions for a few months hmm. talking about whether we're going to commit to each other or not and we did and i i decided i was like you know i want to take a chance on this relationship 
I date to marry. Like if I could marry this girl, this would be like everything. And she and I were together for the, the rest of the year. And it's, it's so crazy because the next two weeks, two weeks from then, the pandemic started. They shut down everything. We had to move off campus. And so every day during isolation, I was on the phone with her, FaceTiming, looking at her, being nothing but in love. And I, I used to say that was the happiest time of my life. And when we broke up, I felt like, wow, I am probably the worst person in the world. How could somebody this amazing not want to be in my life anymore? And so for the next year, I was battling with how terrible I thought I was as an individual. And that that really was like when I recognized the wolf. And I, I have pictures on my social media of what the wolf looks like, like this this grotesque black and red monster who would show up to haunt me in my sleep and I couldn't sleep for months because I felt like like the wolf was coming to kill me, you know? And yeah, it was it was bad. It was really bad. On the bright note, I've learned to love the wolf. He is my superpower now. <laughs> <laughs> but but did she break up with the wolf? Uh she she broke up with me. As much as I separate the three personalities, those are still all me. Yeah. And I had to recognize why. I had to recognize where I needed to heal. I need to recognize where I needed to grow. And I feel like both of us needed to grow as individuals anyway. I mean, when I tell the story, I've I even said I didn't think we were ready to get together. And that's not just me. That's also on her part, too, because uh, we weren't going in the right direction. We weren't going in the same direction or we didn't know that we were going in the, re- the same direction. And so that already bred, I'll say, a misalignment that breeds tension, you know? So from the from yeah. the jump. Yeah. I think you highlight a point though that our love lives, our relationships, they can take over everything. It's we we can't compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that school was very difficult for you at that time. Work was difficult for you, right? Or or, or were you able to keep going? Yeah. So I hated every moment of doing classwork other than maybe a couple classes with some of the teachers that I really liked. Most of it, I really was worried about crying while on Zoom in a class. And so I'd have to turn off my camera and I hated teachers who were like, keep your cameras on. But one class in particular, my sophomore year was personal leadership and development. Lawrence Henderson, well, Dr. Lawrence Henderson now and that class, we were doing serv- a servant leadership program. And so we would every week teach people. And in my group in particular, we were working with Gilgal, who helps, you know, women who are recovering from addiction get their start in the workforce. And seeing those women every Friday and just serving and building the relationship that I did with them, like, going through what I was going through with my family and my internal, my emotional needs. And it was tough. It was really, really, really tough. But that class, that class really saved my life. Wow. I want to zoom out a little bit. Obviously, you're you're someone who thinks a lot about what leadership means and what people need from leaders. When you look around at leaders today, people you've worked with or professors or bosses or coaches, I don't know. What have you seen that has worked for you and that you've taken in as maybe this is a role model 
And also, oh gosh, I never want to be this person. This is not the kind of leader I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting that you say that, right? Because everybody has a leader in them. Everybody is a leader in their own right. And the idea that some people are leaders and others are not is such a misnomer. Yeah. I feel like that's like the best place to start. My whole journey with intentional leadership really came with recognizing that everybody has a different leadership style. Everybody is led differently and everybody leads differently. And I had to figure out how to open myself up to just being able to learn from other people. It, it became about humility. It became about not leading, but to serve. And servant leadership became the calling because if I can figure out how to serve the people who work for me, then they could work with me forever as long as we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. I always look at my mom. My mom, as I said, started a nonprofit organization in Mozambique. It's called Mission Mashangulu. So I always look at my mom. My mom is my hero. My mom is my role model. Mm. And it's, it's, if anything, it's I'm going to serve and that's what I'm going to do. I think anything is possible. I can be angry. I can lead with very strict authority. I try not to. I try to do my best to just say, hey, let's have a conversation about this to figure out what a solution is if people aren't doing what they're supposed to do or meeting their responsibilities. But my peak is I just need to serve. And if I can serve y'all, then we'll get where we need to go. Yeah. My question is, when a servant leader is anxious, what's the best way to handle that? That's an interesting question. Anxiety is so subject, like things make us anxious on different occasions. So could you, could yeah. you give me more like of a specific scenario? Well, you're leading a department. Your boss has said, we've got to cut costs. Uh. I want a million dollars cut out of the budget in six weeks. That would make most people anxious. That would make most people very anxious. And when you're a servant leader, why don't you explain to everyone what a servant leader is first? And then let's, I want to model that out because this is a question I get a lot, you know, like, okay, you're saying that anxiety is a, is a normal part of leadership. How am I supposed to show up and be authentic when I'm anxious, but not make my team anxious? I got you. So servant leadership is the idea of leading from behind. It can be leading from in front. It can be leading from behind. But in the process, you are not thinking of directing people, but more so of being self-directed and that you are going to offer support. That comes with people who are, who are visionaries setting up structure. This is how the organization should look. This is the business model. This is how I make my whole canvas and this is how I want people to have their experience. And so at the point where they start to talk about other people's experiences, the customers and the employees, that's when they become a servant leader is now I want them to have the best experience here as possible. And so I have to serve them in order to do what I want to do. In the case of college, I am in a classroom, right? And I want to make sure that I learn everything necessary. But in that same course, the best way to learn is to teach. And so mm. if I go to my classmates and I start making quizlets and I start making study materials, that means I have now taken initiative, right? I've taken the lead and I have shared those materials with other people and I start answering their questions. And so now I'm serving them 
I'm self-directed, I'm serving them, and I'm growing for the mutual cause because all of us are trying to succeed in this class. And so I guess to address the scenario that you painted is, well, there are different ways that people can cut that one million from the budget. And I like creative financing. A lot of people are scared (laughs) of it. I like the idea of not looking at who we should cut, but how we can create more value from every single job that's there and figure out what systems need to be put in place or what relationships we need to build with suppliers to make that happen. But it's all based in creativity. And so we need to be, it's like the initial response for anxiety is to shut down for a lot of people. It's the, I need to breathe, breathe, breathe. Let's get creative, (laughs) put every idea on the board and get it out. Because the last thing we need to do is to keep everything pent up inside. Do I share that I'm anxious? Oh, definitely. With with somebody yeah. with somebody that you trust, I'll say. Yeah. Do it first with somebody that you trust. And that's why it's so subjective. Everybody has a different dynamic with their teams. Yeah. And so there are some people where it is much more acceptable because there's a culture built around sharing free-flowing emotion. Whereas there are other places where people are so hard pressed that this is my professional workplace. I don't want to get involved in anybody's personal matters, then the culture is built around showing up for work and leaving. And people care more about the leaving than the showing up. Mm. And so in spaces where the dynamic and the relationship has been built, right, to connect with people on, on a deep emotional level, it's probably more okay to say, guys, this is what's happening. I just need you all to be dedicated in solving the issue with me or or working on this issue with me because I don't know the answers yet. Here are a few of our options, but this is not it, right? There's never really a limit unless we set the limit. But those spaces are more able to share in the insecurity, whereas other spaces are not. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. I've noticed, so you seem pretty entrepreneurial to me. You come from an entrepreneurial family, it seems like. Do you think about going to work in a big institution? No, never. Why not? Never. Never. I, if And if I am working on a big institution, it's because I'm the consultant and I'm making something move and shake. 
<laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm about to graduate from Morehouse. So I've made it a rule. I was like, I'm never going to just give money to Morehouse. But if I am going to invest in Morehouse, it's going to be creating a program and it's going to be a self-funded program so that we can kind of bypass the bureaucracy so that we can serve students as best as possible. We can serve the alumnus pool as, as, as much as possible and get into it. And that would be me serving in an institution, but I would not be hired by that institution. Do you think you're representative of your of your generation in any way? I mean, we read a lot about a distrust of institutions, certainly of corporate America, among younger generations. It's not even that I distrust the institution. It's that I do trust the institution. I trust the institution to do what they're going to do or what they have <laughs> done historically. Yes. Um, I, I never, I've always been an outsider. It's hard for me to have conversations with a lot of my peers that I feel are meaningful to myself, which is why I've had mm. to find value in what other people value. Well, I wouldn't think that I'm very representative of, of my generation, but when they say, you know, Gen Z doesn't want to work, I'm like, well, I want to play, but like my play is like figuring out how to make a million dollars by the end of the week. And, and, and so I'll play with you. <laughs> so it's like, I have to put in a lot of work. I have to put in a lot of work to make that happen. But for me, it's like, I'm really just a dog trying to get a bone. Like, <laughs> well, I think it's hard. It's hard these days to look at our institutions, our corporate, our business institutions and think, yes, that feels like me. Oh, yeah. Um, it's hard. So a big piece of your work in university has been working with people around their mental health. I know you just said you don't feel representative and you're an N of one, but but I do want to just talk a little bit about Gen Z and mental health writ large okay. because you must you must have a viewpoint on it. You know, one of the things that I hear from leaders who are typically not Gen Z, right? Most of them are Gen X late millennials, Gen X, early millennials, Gen X, boomers even, is that there is a sense of Gen Z is very into mental health. Mm -hmm. Gen Z is very into feeling the feelings mm -hmm. in a way that is almost distracting or detrimental or that makes older people distrust mm -hmm. because they weren't raised that way. I want to hear from your perspective what the students you've counseled and yourself think, we need to know, like, what are we getting wrong about this? That's, that's loaded. Um, so it's true. Our, my generation is definitely into mental health. And I didn't realize how much so until I saw the freshmen coming in last year, my junior year. Mm. And people were like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I'm into mental health. Like, this is cool. And it's like, oh, I listen to podcasts about this. And oh, I, <laughs> and it's so interesting, though. Our generation, in which I feel like several generations shared this idea where it's like mental health is important, but self-help books are weird. <laughs> That's what I've gotten so far. It's like, huh, wait, so you're telling me that mental health is important, but then the people who put it in books and make it about personal development have quite literally been ostracized by young minds who don't understand what the content of the books are. It's that most of it is all about serving other people. Wow. Well, I will say also like self-help culture has now merged with like new age culture, with wellness culture, and it all feels a little bit. It's murky. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely and, murky. Uh, 
not serious. Yeah, yeah. I will say my least favorite thing about hearing my generation talk about personal development and mental health is this idea of, and this is this is the space where we do promote it, uh, mm-hmm. but mental health breaks not as a break for us to just like grow and to heal, but like a mental health break being used just so that somebody can go out to a movie. Mm. Do people do that? Oh, definitely. And I understand that your mental health is important. I understand that that you're going to get the work done. My thing is you're taking a mental health break now while you're okay. Mm-hmm. And then when you're in a crisis, you need the mental health break and you're going to be pulling your hair out. And you could have done that work in the two hours or three hours that that you spent at the movies. And then the subsequent four hours that you spent at a party and hanging out with your friend. It's like investing, right? Like people who get in for the short term get a marginal gain, whereas people who are in for the long game get that 10x return. Yeah. And so I often see that is it's the investing principle is it's, you know, they're fast in and they're fast out. It's like, I'm going to take this mental health break to have a really quick short win. And then I'm going to be losing for most of it. And um, that's definitely been been something that I've paid attention to. And I, I've tried to push people to work on their schedules and to have very healthy, dynamic schedules that address their sleeping habits, their eating habits, their snacking habits, their exercise, their fitness work, and their priorities, prioritize the work that they're doing. And so what institutions like schools are, are failing to do is to teach students not only how to learn, but how to implement those practices in their everyday lives so that they can be successful. I mean, statistically, your generation has terrible mental health compared to previous. I mean, it's it's the numbers are bad. And there there was a recent study of young people out of the Harvard Institute of Politics. It said that 55 percent, and I think it was 18 to 29-year-olds, had depression or anxiety. That's a really high number. So something is not right. Well, I mean, I could I always push back against stuff like that, right? Because Oh, good, tell me. One once one you have to think, well, who's collecting the data? And then also, if you've actually ever done any studies of humanity, you know that things in history change, you know that language changes, you know that that culture changes, right? And so to say that our generation has more mental health issues than before is like saying slavery doesn't exist today in some other form. Right. Because slavery today looks very different than slavery in the 1800s or the 1700s or even before that. If you think about a survey, sending out a survey to people and studying people, my generation is just more comfortable with saying that they're depressed. Whereas generations before do not feel as comfortable admitting that they were depressed right. or that they had anxiety. And so. Or might not have the language for it even. Right. Exactly. So they, so those earlier generations, older generations do not necessarily, because I I can't say do not, but they do not necessarily have the culture built where it's okay to talk about it, where it's okay to mention it without looking crazy, even if it's on a survey, even if it's anonymous. That's interesting. I think there is a real change of language. I think social media has a part of it. Oh, huge part. Huge part. 
social media is a is a monster right now for civilization it's so detrimental it's it's helpful it's beneficial to so many things especially entrepreneurship small business and you know connecting with with the right information sources that can help people but then you got to think well that's probably like a quality 10% and then the the 90% is a bunch of garbage that really is either harmful or distracting. All right. So my last question for you, I'm going to put you on the spot with another leadership hypothetical. If you were counseling a peer who was struggling with anxiety or depression and wanted to talk to their boss about it, but also was very ambitious and wanted to sort of keep rising what would your advice be? Uh, well, in most situations, I talk to people about their value add. Mm. And so, you know, they're worried about something and they don't want it to affect their position in the company. And so my whole thing is, well, let's understand where you are, what your position is, right? Because there is like a hierarchy or a step-by-step process to how to deal with people. And I think the first point is, position in relation to other people. The second position that we have is permission, right? We have to ask for permission and also give permission for people to talk to us about these things. And somebody in, I guess, a higher position than you or a different position might not give you the permission to talk to them. And so we need to figure out what our position is right now, what our relationship with them is, figure out what the value add is so that we can figure out what's valuable to them to communicate to them while also Mm. still getting through our points. And so I like to talk to people about, okay, so what are you going through? What's your experience? Okay. Who do we need to talk to about this? Okay. What do they need to hear? What did they need to have addressed in a conversation with them? What words do we need to use to market this idea to them? And so my starting point is let's figure out the internal situation. Let's figure out who we need to address it. And then let's figure out how to build a bridge. And communicate what's in it for them. Exactly. I think that is good advice. I second that advice. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I've had to be a mediator too often. And I'm just like, I'm just like, just figure out how to talk to them. Gosh. I know. I I think when anyone is trying to communicate something that they need that will potentially make their boss or their manager, whomever, or their colleague uncomfortable or take on more work is really to communicate the value and solutions as well as the fact that they really need this and that they are allowed to take it. No, literally. And that's actually one of the most important things about love languages. And we didn't even get into love languages. My generation loves love language. If you walk anywhere, they're like, what's your love language? What's your zodiac sign? But what's your love language? And and I'm like, well, I'm just like, all right. So so I'm glad that people are addressing what love language is and, and all that, right? Like, I'm glad that they're addressing that. My thing is addressing it well means understanding that you need to love people and communicate with people in their language, right? But that means that, that you need to be able to communicate on all levels or you need to know where you're best so that you can communicate that you're not best at that. Like my top two love languages are quality time and physical touch and those two interchange. But if people try to serve me, I get super anxious because I, I don't need people to serve me. And I serve, but I don't expect to be served in return. So when people do it, I'm always pushing back against them. But 
at the end of the day, I'm going to say, I appreciate you for doing this. People giving me gifts. I'm like, well, I don't need anything more in the world, but I will still share my time with you because quality time is what I value. And so we need to understand all five languages. Maybe, maybe people need to be reading the book. It's so funny because I actually have said to people, what is their love language? I don't even use, I mean, it's a brilliant concept and just FYI, acts of service. It's how I communicate love. So mm -hmm. I will pay my husband's bills and take that off his plate. Mm. I think that's the biggest thing I can do that shows that I love him. He thinks that's me being a nag. He wants quality time. He wants gifts. Like he gives me gifts. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, sweetie, I don't want gifts. Right. So understanding both love languages and what is meaningful to people is actually, you're right. It is a huge, huge. leadership skill huge. and a relational skill. Huh. All right. So bosses out there, familiarize yourself with the five love languages. Please do. <laughs> it works, works wonders. It'll help you in, in the workplace and it'll help your relationship too. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.